We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. We rejoined the second part of our two-part episode today, Cats versus Dogs. Back in 2020, we gathered two outspoken thinkers to settle it once and for all. John Gray is one of the UK's best-known and most popular philosophers who wrote the book Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life. No prizes for guessing which side he was on. And Will Self, the novelist, broadcaster and critic who went for Team Dogs. Hosting the debate was the writer, academic and broadcaster Shahida Bari. Now let's join the conversation once again with Shahida opening up the debate to audience questions. We've got some terrific questions and um, let's start with with this question. I I like cats more but I'm concerned about their effect on the wild bird population. What do you think about this? Well, I talk about that in my book a bit. There are ways of dealing with this practically. They can bells can be attached to them. You can you can pursue policies which limit that impact. It's also true, by the way, though, that birds can be harmful. They're more likely to spread contagious diseases than cats. Most animals have this feature. And the big thing I think, the big thing beyond this is which species, let's use the language of species just for a moment, is most responsible for mass extinction. It's not cats or dogs or birds. It's the one we belong to, however porous it is. So I think that's what we should be focusing on. But I take the seriousness of the question. The question is serious. But one can adopt this, put a bell on it. Cats get used to it. They still enjoy uh, trying to capture birds, but they do so much less frequently when a bell alerts the bird. (laughs) Will, is uh, Maglorian a predator? Uh, McLaurin, being a Jack Russell, of course, is bred as a ratter. His job is to keep the rat population down in in farmyards traditionally or in fox hunting, which is a completely is about as useless to humans as cats. The fox, as, as Oliver Rackham, the great historian of the English countryside, puts it, the fox would have been extinct by the Tudor era if people didn't enjoy hunting it. <laughs> so they're kept artificially alive, whatever the hunting lobby tell you, in order that they can hunt them. And incidentally, they're still doing it. That drag racing is just a blind. 
So McGlorian would be put down the set, would be carried on the the huntsman's saddle and then would be put into the set to, to drag the fox out and then it would be dispatched. So in true dog fashion, he acts as the, the hitman for the human hierarchy. I mean, and, and, you know, one thing we, we need to recognise about how closely intertwined we are is, you know, so in traditional societies, in Australian Aboriginal society, dogs have their own dreaming. Dogs' lineages are are accounted for. They have their own totems. They have a a complete interlinkage with with human cultural knowledge in that way. No, McLaurin's never hunted or killed anything in his life. He's notably pathetic (laughs) in that way. And and, and I was never seriously arguing, even in a post-apocalyptic situation, for the profound utility of dogs. I'm not arguing for them as therapy dogs. I'm not arguing for them as objects of, of... slavish affection in that way at all that's not my argument my argument is quite simply that we really really are in it together and you know yes John is perfectly free to project a future in which cats, you know, sort of dominate the earth and everything's sort of beautiful. And you could just—it would be beautiful—a planet of cats sunning themselves <laughs> in the in in the vast red dwarf that's about to supernova. But <laughs> shout out for dogs as well. Bear in mind, in every situation in which you get uh, social collapse, meaningful social collapse, very quickly you see charming packs of mixed former pet dogs hunting together. Poodles and chihuahuas alike bringing down game. I find that very reassuring. I don't think in my in my urge to associate dogs with humans at this very profound organic level, I also wish to allow them their autonomy. And I, and I think they are perfectly capable of knowing, if you'll forgive the, the, the continued scatological <laughs> idioms, when the shit really has hit the fan. I mentioned one, one climate scientist said to me, look, it won't be all bad. The polar bears will become brown bears. Well, they already are, of course, because their 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 fur is in fact transparent, as we know. So, yeah. let me let me ask. Well, that sounds like episode two about um, polar bears versus other bears. Bears, but let me ask you this question, which I think is actually a very deep one. Actually, did they domesticate us, or did we domesticate them? And I think that applies to both cats and dogs. And that's a question really about power. Who's in charge? Our cats, our dogs, or us? Well, if I could just jump in there, there's no evidence that cats have done anything that sort of chip up. They're not domesticated, effectively. I'm not going to argue that. And I think that, you know, I'll give them a mark for that. That's impressive. Marvellous book came out last year called uh, Against the Grain on domestication in early Mesopotamian civilizations. And, and the author, whose name has just slipped my mind annoyingly for a minute, I think it's James Scott or something like that, he's the doyen of the subject, points out that almost every domesticated species that's been domesticated by humans is about a third less intelligent than its wild conspecifics and considerably more docile and herd-like. He calls it, he calls these Mesopotamian civilizations uh, late Neolithic species resettlement camps. Uh, and which I think is a marvellous phrase, and it captures the subtext of the entire book, though he never, of course, states it explicitly because it's too subversive, which is, of course, not only 
did we domesticate other animals, we domesticated ourselves, or rather, this was a collective event. And and I'm sorry, domesticated humans are probably a third stupider (laughs) than their wild conspecifics. And certainly a great deal more docile, as recent events have, have proved yet again. John? And oddly enough, humans, or perhaps naturally enough, dream less well than their pre-domesticated. Mm. Oh, wow. Comparing mm. them with the Australian indigenous peoples, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dream less, interestingly. Dreams are much a much larger part of the life of so-called pre-civilized or prehistoric species. No, I, I, uh, I don't think we're very far away from each other on, on this point. I I wonder if you can answer this next question, which I warn you is a little bit personal. And if you feel bashful, that's absolutely fine. Where do you both stand on kissing your cat or dog? Too anthropomorphic? I never did. Even uh, that's all I can tell you. I mean, maybe (laughs) we rubbed noses. Cats like to rub noses if they trust you, if they like you. They don't do it for long and they turn away pretty quickly, <laughs> but they do do it and they do seem to enjoy it. They don't resist it being, uh, it being done. But uh, I've never, I, if, if my kiss, you mean mouth to mouth, I've never done it. Well, yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to paraphrase uh, Martin Amos's uh, brilliant episode about sibling in about how, why um, sex in long married couples is like sibling incest. It happens remarkably infrequently, and when it does, is attended with great shame by both parties. Uh, which is all by way of saying that I have great shame in this matter. And, and uh, the marvellous book by J.R. Ackley um, about his dog, my dog Tulip, uh, he gets pretty close to admitting to having a sexual relationship with the dog. Pretty close. Well, in fact, he does admit it. I've certainly met people who have had sexual relationships with dogs. I've had a, a rich and full life. And as I to go back to what I said at the beginning, I'm not surprised. I mean, it doesn't float my boat. It's hard to imagine the dog could consent meaningfully, which would make me worried ethically. But that being noted, you know, there's a, there's a good old American country blues band back in the, in, in the 19... 19- 60s called Three Dog Night. Well, every every night for McGlorian is a two-human night. He covers himself with the bodies of the two humans he sleeps with and, and the way he kind of... And as I say, I feel no kind of let or hindrance to cuddling him or having the kind of intimacy with him, including kissing him, that I would have with any of my other children. It would not occur to me to feel awkward or strange about that. And it's not to do with being anthropomorphic. It's to do with the fact that he's a dog. And and it's natural, in as much as anything is natural, for us to kiss dogs. It's not a problem. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, 
financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Great to have you be so confessional. This is a question from Shay. Uh, I've had an argument that the cats versus dogs debate is less about their qualities, but really about our own human personalities, in that we each have an instinctive affinity for one or the other. So my question is, do you feel that you can tell whether someone you know is a dog person or a cat person before they confirm one way or another? John? I, can't, I can't always tell. For one thing, if you're feline, in your behavior you might not reveal <laughs> cats reveal what they want to reveal uh this is by the way related to something else whereby if uh, i noticed someone flashed up a question which i thought was a very interesting question that there's a special joy in communicating with a cat because it's so difficult most of the time i mean on the one hand they're very explicit about what they want they're in no way inscrutable or impenetrable if they want their breakfast, they'll tell you relentlessly until they get some satisfaction. And if they don't, they'll push off somewhere. Uh, but on the other hand, it's hard to, uh, for them to communicate uh, to us in the way that dogs can. If you look, I look into a dog's eye, you can see them looking directly back at you and interacting. It hardly ever happens with cats because if you look in a cat's eye, it's, it's programmed evolutionarily to see that as a threat. So you have to be kind of indirect. But when you can from time to time, and I've had this experience, when they, when they want to communicate something to you, it's even more, in a sense, precious, coming from beyond the human world. It's almost like it is like an alien species communicating. And the communication is normally friendly if you've had a long 
friendly relationship with me. Just rephrase your question, Shahida, uh, the one you started with. It was, uh, it's about whether we know whether a, a cat person is a cat person or a dog person, if there is anything. Well, I think I, I can't tell. I mean, I think that's a, that's, that's a, a stereotype which doesn't really, well, first of all, lot, lots of people like both. Some people don't like either. Yeah. Uh, they prefer birds, for example, some people. I can't really tell unless I know the person rather well. Well, we could test it because neither you nor Will know me very well. I wonder what you think I am. Can you tell? Will? Look deep into I'd, my eyes. Well, <laughs> I, I, I suspect you may come from a Muslim background by Ooh. your name. Oh, so this is real detective work, Will. In which case, while it's absolutely not true that people who, you know, in the several cultures that make up the Muslim world are absolutely opposed to dogs, nonetheless, I believe, you can, uh, if, if somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, that they are considered to be haram. In other words, you don't have them in the home. It's You don't keep dogs in the home. So if you do come from a Muslim background, I suspect that you might be more likely to be a cat person, but only by cult- uh, acculturation, not I will necessarily reve- by acculturation. I will reveal all later. Um, <laughs> but let me ask you some more questions. And I'm going to encourage our audience to keep asking these questions because they are, they, are, they are excellent. I'll ask this question. Uh, cats have a whole range of meows to let us know whether they want something. Dogs only have a bark. Does that not make cats superior? Maybe this is about animals and language. Is there a distinction here between our cats and our dogs? Well, I mean, if I can jump in there, I mean, one, that's just not true. Dogs have lots of different kinds of what we have to call vocalisations as well. And in fact, you know, the dog just now was kind of whining away, wanting me to let him out of the room. So they've got lots of different vocalisations. This question of communication, because I think John has been quite eloquent there in saying it's the very kind of difficulty and the struggle. You know, he was slightly kind of adding to Wittgenstein's famous apposu that if a lion could speak, we wouldn't be able to understand what he said. And, and I, I'm with, with John and contra Wittgenstein and the analytic philosophers. I think that's absolute nonsense. Of course, if a lion could speak, we very much would understand what he was saying, because otherwise it wouldn't be speaking. It's a sort of meaningless statement in the first place. And anyway, I think there is a lot of interspecific communication. And I, despite the impact of Saussurean linguistics on our philosophic thinking, I do not think that all thought is language at all in quite that way. And it's an, a, a, or even semiotic in quite that way. I think there is room for sub-language, imagistic communication, effective forms of communication, all of that. I think that the the advantage that the dog definitely has over the cat is the communicative one, though. And and against John's point that, you know, you you feel a sense of victory when you've managed to communicate with your cat, I have to say that the uh, ease and fluidity of the communication with the dog, especially emotional communication, is part of what makes the relationship so attractive. And listen... I never wanted to go to this place, and it's certainly not my point, and I wouldn't want to win the argument on that. But you've got, but John has to face it, at least in 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 cognitive terms as humans understand it. Uh, dogs are way smarter than cats; they just are. I'm sorry, they just are. And and in terms of 
therefore the ability to communicate with us, they're going to be better at it. Perhaps I can pick up on the, the philosophy we've talked about, Wittgenstein. John, your book, of course, is called Feline Philosophy, and uh, you begin with an epigraph, or the, the, the very famous cat paradox from Montaigne, uh, whether, is, is my cat playing with me or am I playing with my cat? And Montaigne can't work out. And that's repeated by Derrida, actually, a few years ago, when he undresses in front of his cat and realises that he is naked next to his naked cat. So are the, the cats are in the philosophy does this mean that are dogs not intellectual do dogs have a place in philosophy well this i mean it's a person who wrote J.R. ackley who wrote that wonderful book about his love his love relationship with his dog queenie wasn't it wasn't a philosopher so he didn't pursue philosophical questions but he plumbed the depths of philosophical inquiry by uh, exploring and getting ever more deeply into what love relations are like for humans and dogs. And one of the things he brings out, by the way, and this is one of the differences between cats and dogs, is the jealousy of Queenie, of Achilles' human relationships. Hmm. In other words, Queenie's not jealous of Achilles' relationships with other dogs. I don't think he had any, at least not Hmm. simultaneously. Cats object when other cats come into a human world that they inhabit and treat as their own. I don't think they give a toss about other humans unless they sense that the other humans are hostile to them. Otherwise, mm. they, do, they don't count. And that's a fundamental... By the way, on Wittgenstein, I did cite Wittgenstein to someone I knew for some years who kept lions in a very humane, out-of-doors way for 30 years. And he said, well, he obviously, that bugger knew nothing about lions. <laughs> and that was... It was just ignorance that led Wittgenstein to say that, or rather... A theory, as we'll say, a theory yeah. of, what well, langu- of what language must be. So there couldn't be a counterexample for Wittgenstein because then it wouldn't. You say, but, you know, what about this? He communicates all the time with the lines. Ah, well, that's not language. There was a marvellous uh, video that went viral a couple of years ago of this couple from London who had adopted, had, had, you know, being the 60s, had acquired a lion cub, a uh, a female lion club then grew up with them and obviously became a bit of a handful so these guys they were a gay couple took the took the lioness uh, i think to kenya or wherever that woman joy adamson had her her lion reserve and released the lion into the wild and there's a marvelous video of them going back to visit the lion like 15 years later getting out of the jeep and this lioness, this fully grown lioness, hugging them, embracing them, running across and leaping up on them and embracing these humans. And it's not harming them. No, not at all. Of course not. No, I mean, dogs are really part of the family. They just are. And, you know, when my partner and I started living together more because of the pandemic, she started seeing a lot more of the dog. And eventually they fell in love with each other with a deep and passionate love and really intensely. And they're together. They've gone into another room together now. And I am very jealous. (laughs) And and I'm jealous of both of them. Here's the interesting thing. So it's back to John's point about in a strange way, 
he wants to claim cats as teaching something about human love relations, uh, instructing us. But I actually think the dog does it too. You know, by arousing us to this capability we have for jealousy in that way, both of the non-human and the human, they again draw our attention to the ridiculous nature of speciesism. Yeah. Well, they're both, neither of them, cats or dogs, aim to do this or want to do this or perhaps even care that they're doing it but they're both tremendous aids to human self-knowledge yes well i mean i i emailed uh, when we were setting up the debate saying talking about mclorian and saying you know like dogs of his age he is still relentlessly involved in politics because dogs you know which is which is a big mistake for anybody who's getting on, but particularly for dogs. Well, let, let me let me ask you both about politics. I did notice that during the recent US election, much fanfare was made over the fact that Biden will be bringing dogs and I think cats back to the White House and that the fact that President Trump didn't have pets was taken as indicative of something. Could, could that be right? Not the lack of pets are having an antipathy to cats and dogs? Uh, um, it may not be conclusive, though it didn't need to be in his case, but it's a bad sign because it means he's more interested in himself and he doesn't think he has anything to learn either from other human beings, but still less from non-human beings. And that's what it means. So to me, it was a bad sign. I don't know whether it was true that the Blairs didn't like the number 10 cat. I don't know if that was true or not. I believe um, it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, he was probably, uh, you know, agreeing with with George W. Bush to go into Iraq, you know, and cause untold suffering the same day that he was hating Humphrey, the Downing Street cat. I well, the see- bad thing about cats from a Blairite point of view is that they're not interested in progress. they're they're very content with the life they have and if they could understand progress i mean one of the things i imagine is what would a feline philosopher a cat with the intellectual powers of a of a human but otherwise a cat Mm. would be very i think very skeptical about progress Mm. let's um make some progress ourselves Uh, the final vote uh draws very close gentlemen so let's hear our debaters close their arguments i think you have one to two minutes each John, do you want to speak for cats first? Yes, I mean, I'll just repeat what I've said. It's not a new argument. It's that um, they're not superior to dogs. People who love cats and don't love dogs so much are not superior to dog lovers. It's not about superiority or any kind of hierarchy. It's that cats can give something to our lives that dogs can't give because dogs are too close to us, too bonded, too adapted to our, our souls and our ways of life to give what cats can do. Cats can live with us intimately and yet be utterly different from us so that when we do interact, it's a miracle. Will, your closing argument for dogs? Yes, we're in it together. We're in the shit together. And and their great advantage is that they will stay in it with us. And, uh, you know, I I, I said I wouldn't resort to this argument, but I will. (laughs) Nothing if not contrary. (laughs) Uh, I used to be very friendly with uh, the notorious ex-gangster and, and bank robber John McVicker, who was at one time Britain's most wanted man after a jailbreak from Wakefield, a special unit that had pretty much been constructed in order to imprison him because he'd caused such trouble in, in the prison system. And he he once, uh, he had, John had a, a little terrier that he, he got from his mum called Clem. He loved Clem very much, this little terrier. And he once said to me, you know what, Will, I think 
if during my youth, when I'd been in all that trouble, and particularly when I was in prison, I think if I'd had Clem, I wouldn't have caused any trouble at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, it's now time for you, our glorious audience, to make your final vote on the motion, cats versus dog. You should see the slide now on the screen. While we're waiting for the votes to come in and be counted, it's sort of like the state of Georgia all over again, let me ask our debaters one final question. I'm sure you've both heard of the sports term goat, greatest of all time but is there a goat of cats or a goat of dogs who's the greatest cat of all time john oh well an answerable question because they don't any hierarchies they form themselves are very fluid and very temporary and, and practical otherwise they just pursue their own i have a question for shady you said you would tell us which oh i know I I I am. Uh, I have to tell Will that there are lots of Muslims who love dogs, and you're right that the cultural antipathy to it means that it's a love that dare not speak its name very often. But I admit that I am wild about cats. But mm. I have been very impartial in this debate. I think, um, mm. yeah. Uh, mm. Will, who's your greatest cat? Uh, your greatest dog of all time? Well, my greatest cat was my cat Spike who I loved despite the fact that he not only killed birds, he used to rip their wings off and herd them into the garage where they would kind of keep them captive. Impressive behaviour, very big, beautiful tabby. But of course, the greatest dog of all time is my Jack Russell McGlorian, who because I, I love him. It's as simple as that. That would also be true of me. Uh, The the greatest one for me was probably Sophie, one of the Burmese I had who died at the age of 13. Ah. Uh, who can uh, argue with those examples? Shall we see if our final vote, our results has come in? Are we ready? Oh, wow. OK, we're ready. Uh, votes are in and we can declare an animal king or queen. A reminder that the result of the first vote was cats 34%, dogs 48%, undecided slash hamster 17%. So we started with dogs leading and the final count is <laughs> cats 47%, dogs 49%, undecided three. Wow. So, John, you clawed back quite a lot there, pun intended. It's very, very close. close. It's very yeah. close. A whisker between you, 47, <laughs> 49. Um, so, commiserations, John, but it was a very close run thing. And, Will, you're like a dog with two tails today. Um, thank am. you so much to Will Sullivan. Thank you, Will. And John thank Gray. You, John. Thank you, too, to you, our audience. You've been totally delightful. I'm sorry that your pets couldn't be involved as well. And, and to Intelligence Squared, thank you for hosting us this evening. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy a host of member benefits, such as ad-free listening, extra bonus content and more, then head to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. 